0: now preach, if you'll allow me to do so. Uh, We're going to be in a series that we are continuing called I'm Not Fine, and here's the premise of the series. If you're new or new to it, the idea is that it's okay to come to church and to acknowledge that not everything is going great in your life. This morning, as I do every Sunday morning, I met with some folks in the courtyard for prayer, and uh, oftentimes we dive right in, but this morning a couple of us, myself included, had to say Hey, I need to talk about some of the things that aren't going really great in my life. It's been a hard, a difficult week. And we believe at Horizon West Church that it's okay to come to church and not pretend. Not act like things are different than they actually are. And so we're going to talk about that. Last week we addressed the feeling of burden that sometimes we feel or weariness in the pursuit of good things. We believe it's the reason Paul said in Galatians 6, 9, Let us not become weary in doing good, for in due season we're going to reap a harvest if we don't give up. Sometimes in the pursuit of doing right, we grow tired. Today is a little different. Today we're going to talk about the burden that we feel when we feel as though we haven't done enough good, or maybe we've done too much not good. And I want to offer you today a word of hope for the guilty. Cultural anthropologists have identified guilt as one of three motivating intrinsic factors in societies. The other two being fear and shame and each of them are a little different. Fear is the idea that I I don't have enough resources, protection, provision, whatever it might be. Shame is different. Shame says I am not enough. There's something bad about me. There's something broken at the core of who I am. Guilt goes a little different direction. Guilt says I haven't done enough or I I have done too much, fill in the blank. When I was young, I came across a book in my home. It was kind of a pilgrim's progress for dummies and I was a dummy and so I picked it up. And what it was, if you're familiar with The Pilgrim's Progress, a book written in the 1500s by a man named John Bunyan, who was imprisoned for his testimony and his faith in Jesus. And because there were no iPhones, John Bunyan utilized his time well. And he wrote a book. And the book was a Christian allegory of what it looks like to follow after the heart of Jesus. And in the book, The Pilgrim's Progress, the protagonist Christian leaves the city of depravity, and on his journey, he's carrying this heavy weight. And he shoulders this weight all the way to what's called the place of deliverance. And when Christian comes to the place of deliverance and falls to his knees, immediately the weight falls to the ground and he is set free and he is delivered. I know with 100% certainty that some of you in the room, some of you may be watching online, feel the burden of the guilt that you carry on your back. So what we're going to do today is is look at three questions. Number one, where does guilt come from? Number two, how is guilt dealt with? We'll look at each of these first from a cultural perspective, and then we're going to contrast that with the biblical perspective. And finally, we'll ask the question, and I'm borrowing it from a book written in the 1970s by Francis Schaeffer. We're going to ask the question, how should we then live? So number one, where does guilt come from? Well, there's two different types of guilt. One is what I would call objective guilt, when you do wrong and it just is what it is. You may not feel bad about it, but you have objectively failed, objective guilt. The other is subjective guilt. It's I I feel bad for the things I've done. I feel guilty. Now, if one of you were to slip out while I'm preaching and go into the parking lot and hotwire my car and steal it, you would be objectively guilty of Grand Theft Auto whether you felt bad about it or not. Secondly, you would realize that you were the dumbest criminal in the history of crime because it's the worst car to steal in the parking lot. But that aside, you would be objectively guilty. The police would not show up and say, hey, tell me how you feel about what you've done. (laughs) They would throw you in handcuffs and they would put you in the back of the car and you would go to jail. You are objectively guilty. So where does guilt come from? Number one option, some might say it's formed by culture. They, they would say we have the moral responsibility to act in ways that are appropriate to our culture. And when we fail to do that, we're guilty. Well, here's the problem. And I think there's kind of two. Number one, that answer is different from culture to culture. A couple of years back when my family was still living in Metro West, as many and probably most of us do, lived in a wildly diverse community. And it just so happened that on the bend in the road that we lived, where our house was, four homes basically shared one backyard. If you're wondering why I moved, there's part of your answer. You could hear when the woman next door to us, whose backyard curved around ours, like when she was drinking tea at night, you could hear the ice hitting the glass. It was, it was loud. And it just so happened that the family to the left of us was a Latin American family and they were having a quincearra one night. And it was fun. (laughs) And it was loud. And the music was blaring. And as it got later into the night, some of the other neighbors who also were coming from different parts of the world and other cultures found it offensive. And so one of them went into his car, or into his garage rather, at about nine o'clock at night, set off his car alarm, closed the door and went back to bed. And so I'm in my house hearing loud salsa music and a car alarm blaring on the other side. Police were called, it was a scene, but my point is this, who gets to determine what's right? Nothing wrong with having a concierge, nothing wrong with celebrating into the night, but some cultures say that's offensive, that's inhospitable, that is wrong, so who decides? Not only that, but within cultures, ethics can change over time. We've seen this in America. Our views on things like sexual ethics or the value of life, they can shift from generation to generation. And if we tie our ethics to what society says, we'll be on a constantly changing ground. That's not the place to go to determine where guilt comes from. Others would say it's not our sociology, it's our biology. We're hardwired to act in certain ways. And they would say, believe it or not, that biology tells us to always act in our own self-preservation if alarm bells are going on in your head, that's a good thing. Uh, like, like the practical outworking of that is not good. If tonight as I'm in the beach, or not in the beach, but in the ocean at the beach, and I'm baptizing folks in the water, and I see a young child swept out into the ocean by the waves, I'm gonna jump in and go after him, why? Because I believe intrinsically that that's the right thing to do. But biological ethics would tell me, no, that's the wrong thing to do because I'm not acting in my own self-preservation. And so the results of that view are horrific. The reality is that each of us has a moral compass, a conscience or an intrinsic sense of right and wrong. And that came from somewhere. Paul tells us in Romans chapter two, when Gentiles or non-Jewish people who by the way don't have the law, but do by nature what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they don't actually have the law. And they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their conflicting thoughts, now accusing, now maybe even excusing them. What in the world is Paul talking about? Paul's saying this, you could not even believe in the existence of God, but there's something in you that tells you you're doing right or you're doing wrong. Did you know that this is one of the things that apologists, and defenders of the Christian faith use as evidence of the existence of God? Now you could say it's cultural or you could say it's biological, but let's go one step further. Why do we value life over the taking of life? Why do we value kindness over cruelty? It's because God has made us in his image. We bear a conscience, albeit sometimes seared by people. And that conscience tells us that there is a right and there is a wrong. So here's how the Christian worldview answers the question of guilt. People are guilty not because they've violated cultural standards or failed to act in their own self-interest. People are guilty because they violated the law of God. It is objective guilt, not subjective, meaning... Even if you don't feel guilty, the word says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all guilty of breaking the law of God. It would take you about two pages of the Bible to get to Genesis chapter 3 where we see the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, choosing to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God said not to eat from. That The temptation came to go outside of God's will, to go their own way, and it says that Eve first and then Adam ate the fruit. This became a template for all of humanity. We have all followed in the pattern of their sin. And so Paul tells us in Romans chapter five, he says this. You can pull that up real quick. Romans chapter five, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. This is the answer to the question from a Christian perspective, where does guilt come from? Number two, how is guilt dealt with? Let's look again at what the culture tells us. Culture is gonna start here. Well, you deal with guilt by just doing better. Don't do things that make you feel guilty. And so you tip at Starbucks. You round up your change at Walmart. You virtue signal on Facebook and the watching world goes, wow, you're a good person. But you will find that you're not really good enough to put aside those feelings of guilt inside of you. Or secondly, they'll say to silence the bad feelings. Here's a quote I came across in an article online this week. A woman said, The only person you need to please is yourself. You only need to consider what you want rather than worrying about what you should do. Now, this is, this is the anthem of culture. It's like, man, it doesn't matter what other people say or do or care about. As long as you're happy, that's all that matters. Here's the problem with that. I can't speak for you, but I can speak for me. The bad parts of me don't quietly reside. Like, I'm not driving Miss Daisy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, 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 they're not just sitting in the back seat, to, you know, keeping their stuff together. Like, I am at all times at war with the bad parts of myself because what happens is if I'm not, they overtake me and they will destroy every part of me. It's not enough to just try to do better. It's not enough to just silence the bad feelings. I knew at 15 years old that I couldn't do enough and I couldn't outrun the guilt. I needed another option and hallelujah, God provided one. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And I believe that Christianity is unique among world religions in that our sin against God, our missing of the mark, is both freely acknowledged and fully pardoned. Like the Bible doesn't dodge the question, and go, well, no, no, you're basically okay. No, the Bible says, man, you are dead in your sin. You're you're far from God. You can't make yourself right, but at the same time and in the same breath, it says, but there is a way that is made for you. His name is Jesus. In fact, you can't get to Jesus without that starting point of I'm not fine. God, I can't make it on my own. I can't do enough to earn salvation. It's why John tells us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This is what our culture can, cannot do. It, it fails to do. It can put a band-aid over the problem. It, it can make you feel better about your self-esteem for a time, but it cannot change the heart of what you need most, which is transformation. It cannot make you right with God. That purifying grace only comes through the blood of Jesus that was poured out on the cross. So this is, friends, this is the answer to the question, how is guilt uh, guilt dealt with? In the Bible and in the Christian worldview, guilt is dealt with in this way. God himself paid the price. God himself did it for us. When Jesus, on a Roman cross, stretched out his arms and said the word tetelestai, which means it is finished, what Jesus was saying is there's nothing more you have to do There's nothing you can add to it. You can't earn it. But the blood of Jesus shed on the cross covers your sins. And now you can stand before God as if you had never sinned. He can declare you innocent by faith. This is what happened for Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress. As that weight of sin was on his shoulders. And by the way, I made it even heavier today for the illustration. Because some of you have been there. That weight of sin and people are telling you, you know, just, just don't think about it or, or it's not really there, you're not really, but you know and it's causing stress in your life. It's, it's breaking relationships. It's causing you to go back to the same patterns of dysfunction over and over. It, it creates anxious thoughts, sleeplessness, whatever it is, the answer is to come to the place of deliverance, the cross of Jesus and to lay the burden down and be done with it. To be set free by the grace and the mercy of Jesus. And from there, we ask the third and final question for this morning. How should we then live? How should one live who has had their sin dealt with, whose guilt has been taken away, who's been declared innocent by the only one who could do it, God himself? Here's the answer, Romans chapter eight. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set us free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. How should we then live? Here's the answer. We live with an audacious confidence in the mercy of Jesus. Some would accuse us of being arrogant, How can you know that you're saved? How can you have this thing called assurance? Here's the answer, I know because I had nothing to do with it. Like that that's how I know. Because someone else did it for me and by the testimony of God himself, the blood of Jesus is enough, I can receive it by faith. It is all him and it is not me. Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer said it this way, faith is a living, daring confidence in God's grace. So sure and certain that the believer would stake his life on it a thousand times. The grace of God cannot fail you. It never has and it never will. I believe this morning that the enemy of our souls has two basic strategies against humanity. First, convince guilty people they are innocent. You will be affirmed everywhere else you go in culture. People will tell you, you know, you're not that bad a person, man. It takes a lot to be separated from God. You're basically okay. The Bible will tell you something different. The enemy wants to convince guilty people that they have have no guilt. And then he wants to do this for those who have come to faith in Christ who are part of God's family. He wants to convince those who are innocent that they are still guilty. That's the beauty of Romans 8. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When I was probably a sophomore or junior in college I was doing a paper on Romans chapter 8 for my systematic theology 2 class yes it was as fun as it sounds and my buddy Jeremy was working on the paper with me and it was due like at midnight that night so it's probably like 1154 and we're we're working on the paper and we're I'm just I'm academically typing away gotta get this done there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ and Jeremy goes man isn't that incredible I'm like what's incredible like this is due in five minutes we don't have time to have a conversation He says, man, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's really good news when you're a sophomore or junior in college. (laughs) You mean nothing I've done? Nothing that I could possibly do would separate me from God's mercy and the grace that he gave me at the cross? Paul would say, yes, that's exactly what it means. And many of you I believe are living as innocent people made right through the blood of Jesus but living as though you're still guilty the cross would tell me something different. God's word declares something different. In our day and age, we have to deal with something that's a a growing problem, I think. It's called cancel culture. And it's if you step out of line at all, you know, you just get canceled. But the Bible has a different version of cancel culture. Did you know that? Paul's version of cancel culture goes like this. Colossians chapter two, you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of your trespasses or sins by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. God chose not to cancel the people he created. He chose to cancel the sin that we bore. He put it on the person of Jesus and the work was finished there. This morning, we have a victorious Christ. We have a defeated enemy. And his only play against us is to try to convince us that our guilt remains beyond the cross. It does not. I want to read for you some lyrics written by a group of guys called Shane and Shane. The song is called Embracing Accusation. And these are the lyrics. The devil is preaching the song of the redeemed, that I am cursed and gone astray. I cannot gain salvation, embracing accusation. But could the father of lies be telling the truth of God to me tonight? If the penalty of sin is death, then death is mine. I hear him saying, cursed are the ones who can't abide, and he's right. He's right. Hallelujah, he's right. Oh, the devil's singing over me an age-old song that I am cursed and gone astray. He sings the first verse so conveniently, but he's forgotten the refrain. Jesus saves. Friends, you don't need to run from your sin. You don't need to dodge it, ignore it, hide from it. God already made a way. And in the person of Jesus, God came for you to restore your relationship with a perfect and holy God, and he is enough. In the Old Testament, there was a king named David who was the great king of Israel. Had a tight and intimate friendship with a man named Jonathan who was the son of the previous king. And so in that day and age, what you did is when you became the new king, you had all of the previous king's family killed so they, they weren't a threat to the throne. But David had made a promise and a covenant to his friend, Jonathan. He said, Jonathan, when I become king, all your family is going to live. I'm going to make sure they not only survive, but that they're cared for and provided for. And it just so happens that when David became the king, the caretakers of a young boy named Mephibosheth, who was part of Jonathan's family, was hurried out of the home. And in their haste, they dropped him and he became crippled at the legs. Years later, David, looking at the kingdom God had given him, remembered his covenant to Jonathan and said to his servants, is there anyone left of the house of Saul, Jonathan's father? Now, most kings would be asking for a different reason. They'd be asking because if there are, you need to bring them in and have them executed. This is fully what David's servants thought was going to happen as they brought this crippled man, Mephibosheth, into the king's presence. But David had a different idea in mind. David had that young man, washed, given the finest clothes, placed in a room in his own palace, and brought to the table where David himself would eat. And if you were to ask Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, what in the world are you doing here? Why are you allowed to eat at the king's table? You were an enemy. You should have been uh, executed. You, You have no right here. I think Mephibosheth would give a simple and an honest answer. I'm here because the king called my name. When I was 15 years old, I read from the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 10, the words of Jesus that say this, I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. That's what's written, but I'll tell you what I heard in my spirit. I have come that you, Chris, that you may have life and that you may have it more abundantly. The king called my name. And when you're 15 years old, that's good news that there is grace for everything you've done, everything you could possibly do. When I stand before the Lord, I will say this simple expression, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. It's the only reason I have the opportunity. It's the only reason I can stand in the courts of the king. In a moment, Socrates is gonna lead us in a song called Known. We're going to just have this song sung over you. It might be known to some of you, but for most of you, it's going to be unfamiliar. I just ask that you would receive this. Maybe even put yourself in a posture of prayer. Maybe with your eyes closed, your head bowed, whatever you want to do. Here's the good news that the song we're going to sing in a moment, here's the good news that it articulates. Most of us live with this crippling guilt, this crippling feeling that if people really knew the worst parts of us, they'd reject us. And I'm here to tell you that the one who knows you the best loves you the most. No conditions, no strings attached, Uh, no one day they're going to be an angel. No, no, no. God knows your flaws and your failures and he made provision for them in the person of Jesus. You are fully known and fully loved. Sock, would you come and lead us in the song?